I wanted to start off this morning with a little bit of a personal announcement. Um, and it's, I'd like to just be a little vulnerable, share a little, something that's pretty personal, a decision that Misty and I have been talking about for a while. Um, over the past couple months or so, we've been um, talking about this. And many of you know over the past several years, we have... Uh, We've started a horse, a horse business, a trail riding business. So if you didn't know, I, I own like 20 horses. And um, so we've been, and I've lived in Texas for almost 15 years now. And um, yeah, Texas did, has been, it's 3-0, and guys. It's 3-0. When, when I moved to Austin 15 years ago, they went off a huge cliff. And so now I'm excited. This will be the first time to see them be winners, and so that'll be good. <laughs> um, and so I've grown up in this church, we've been in Texas, and so I wanted to share with you this morning the real me. Is that okay? Can I share the real me? Alejandro, why don't you throw that video up here? This is the real me, guys. Look at me, riding a horse with my daughter. I work outside all the time. I build fences. I get my hands dirty, I get sunburned, and it's not just the pretty boy that you see walking through these halls, okay? There is more to me, and I wanted to share that with you this morning. I drive a truck, and, um, and so that being said, we have come to the intensely personal decision that I am going to start wearing cowboy boots with my normal, as part of my normal attire, okay? So today is the day that you can say, whoa, look at this guy, nice boots. And then after that, no more, okay? I have 20 horses. I grow up, I live on a ranch, and I married a cowgirl, so. And she, and she seems to like it when I wear them, so I don't know. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> um, I wanted to share that with you because... I think all Christians suffer from the split personality disorder. <laughs> they're one way at church, and they're another way at home. They're another way at different uh, circumstances or atmosphere or places. Uh, we act, feel a certain way, and we, we believe the scriptures. We, we, want, we know them to be true, but somehow there's a, this other side of us that acts a certain way or does certain things or thinks or feels certain ways, Right? And sin, I love this definition of sin. Sin is the splitting of self. Sin is the splitting of self, right? When you sin, you are, you're essentially splitting yourself. So when you lie, it's like there's a split. You have to keep up with this other person that you lied for. You have to live in two realities, the, the reality of the lie and the reality of really who you want to be, right? And so that happens in all types of ways. When you break relationship, when you do all of these things, there's a splitting of self that happens, when you sin, uh, Dallas Willard has a quote. He says, sin always splits the self to some degree. You know that you have harmed yourself and others, but you probably are not going to come to terms with that because you're carrying on a charade. Everyone say charade. A charade of righteousness. Even if you don't believe it. And then he goes on to say, so confession is, a very, deep, is very deep in the process of discovering the soul. This is echoed in Romans 17, 7 through 8. As it is no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me. For I know the, that good itself does not dwell in me that is 
in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, right? Paul's talking about that, that tension that we all live in as believers, as Christians who want to strive towards Jesus, but still live in a broken world and have all of these issues, have all of these temptations. And so we're in the book of James 5, 1 through 12 this morning, and James is all about encouraging the believers to live righteously in their real life. It's not enough just to think about it. It's not enough just to feel it. We have to live it out in our day-to-day, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our emotions, right? It's, it's been a very difficult series <laughs> for all of us because we're having to wrestle. We're having to realize, oh, I'm not quite doing what I should be doing all the time, right? And so James is about putting action to our faith. Faith without deeds is dead. He tells us in James 1, uh, to not be double-minded, and so he's encouraging us to strive toward righteousness, not a charade of righteousness, actual genuine righteousness, right? And righteousness is, righteousness equals right standing with God. Um, I like the definition, righteousness equals right relationship with God. And so when we sin, we're kind of splitting ourselves, we're splitting our relationship, we're, we're kind of, and, and the older you get, the easier it is to kind of live in the charade of righteousness, <laughs> The longer you go to church, you kind of figure it out, and the charade becomes a little deeper, a little deeper, and you're growing. There's no doubt about that. God's working on you, and you are becoming better, but at the same time, he's drilling down a little deeper. And so when you sin, you're splitting yourself, and life gets messy, right? You fall out of relationship with God. You tell a lie here and there. You split yourself, and it produces anxiety, um, and Jesus says in Matthew, we were meant to live with unforced, in the unforced rhythms of grace, is what Eugene Peterson says. Unforced rhythms of grace. And so we're going to read a section um, today, and um, we're going to grab some of the main points, and we're going to be on our way. But I wanted to just frame that for us, that there is this person out there that we, we are striving to be, we're striving to live like Jesus, but then there's another side. And the point of Christianity is that they would slowly become the same person. And you can live with unity and you can live into freedom with Jesus before God. So Eugene Peterson translates this section, James 5, 1 through 12. We're going to th- go through it all this morning. Well, we're going to try. I wrote a lot of stuff down. And it's all gold, but... If, if we get to a stopping point, then we'll just stop. Does that sound good? Um, but Eugene Peterson translates this section, destroying your life from within. Destroying your life from within. And so you come to that passage, you're like, woohoo, it's going to be awesome. Um, but I love that description because it's, it's what a description of the life with Jesus amounts to, Right? As we mature, he invites us into greater and greater destruction of our inner self. We get, and, um, and so we get, begin to lose the charade of righteousness as we get older, but there, it becomes a little deeper. It becomes a little more complicated. He begins to point stuff out to you. You thought, oh, maybe I dealt with that, but maybe it's popping up in a different way that I didn't think about, right? And so James 5, 1 through 12 um, or you can write this down, Jesus continually invites us into deeper surrender and relationship with him. There you go. 
James 5, 1 through 12 speaks to one of these charades. And one charade of righteousness that I think we all like to participate in is the charade of control. Ooh. How many of you love control? I'm a control addict. Right? If we're going somewhere, we have a night planned out. Where are we going? Who's going to be there? How loud's it going to be? Whose car are we taking? How late are we staying out? What kind of food do they serve? Right? I'm, we need to take our own car. Um, I like to have a plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? It's just like you think about all the scenarios and then you're never disappointed. <laughs> so I'm a control person. I like to have a plan. I like to know what's going to happen. I don't like to be surprised. Does anybody else like that? Some of you are like, ah, not me, dude. Let's go with the flow, dude. Whatever happens, happens. It's not a big deal. And I envy you. My wife, my wife is like that. I'm like, we need to make more money. And she's like, you need to trust God. <laughs> and I'm like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and so this morning, I, I, I think God wants some of us to release some of that charade of control today. He wants our, to increase our trust in him. And so we're going to talk about three sections of how we can um, do this, how we can um, James is kind of pointing out three areas that I think we can release control to God this morning and trust him. And um, so let's pray. Uh, we're going to get into the scriptures and let's allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Let's allow our lives to be submitted before the word of God. And let's just study this together this morning. Lord, we come to you and we are just so grateful for all the ways that you are faithful, even when we are not, even when we mess up, even when we split ourselves and allow that person control. Father, you are full of compassion and mercy. You are a God of love. You're a God of second chances. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would form us today in the, in the image of your word, that we would become more like you. And so we surrender these next few moments to you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. All right, the first area we try to participate in the air in the charade of control is possessions. Material possessions, money. Money, 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 money. And so um possessions, we're going to start with James 5, 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosions will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Whew. Tough start, James, Jimmy, Jimothy, for those of you that watch The Office. Uh, everyone talks about how tough it is to be Jesus' brother. Like, oh, I feel bad for James. Like, he can compete. He's not doing himself any favors. 
Like, Jesus is like, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And James is like, weep and wail for the misery that is coming on you. It's, it's like, dude, you are not giving yourself a chance in that. And so it's a tough first section, and, um, and we need to remember who James is talking to. Um, he, he actually switches up audiences here a little bit. He, he's does, he doesn't use the usual language of the chapter where he s- says brothers and sisters, right? He's, he's not really talking to believers. He's actually talking to rich farmers and agriculturalists. And he's kind of taking on the voice of an Old Testament prophet. He's calling them out for their desire for possessions, right? You rich people weep and wail because of the misery, He's echoing a sentiment of Jesus in Matthew saying you can't serve both God and money, right? Jesus goes in, gets angry, and flips over the tables. That's my wife's favorite Jesus. I prefer baby Jesus, but. And so these rich farmers have chosen to serve money. And they, what they're doing is they're they're taking advantage of the poor farmers that are in James, James's church and pushing them out in a time of famine. And so they are just like being greedy. They're um, even more than that. Their, their crime is, he says in verse four is he's talking about the witch, the way the rich people are treating the poor. And um, I like what a guy by the name of Ralph Martin, he wrote, he wrote the Word Bible Commentary section for James, and he says, The rich landowners have been so captivated by their wealth that they do not pay their legal, honest obligations. James stirs the social conscience by denouncing the mock piety of those who make a pretense calling upon God in worship when only, when only voice that reaches to heaven is the cry of the oppressed and the workers who have been cheated of their daily wage. Right? They're serving money. They're, they're so consumed with making a profit that they're cheating poor people out of their wages. And so James is righteously just angry. He's, he's calling them out. He's speaking to them. And this is a, an allusion to Cain and Abel, right? What happened with Cain and Abel? He killed his brother. And the scripture says the, that, that uh, his blood cries out to God. His blood cries out to God. And in this passage, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvest have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Right? So there's an allusion to back to Cain and Abel that they, um, even though nobody knows, maybe knows what they're doing, God knows. And I think there's something we can learn about that. Even if somebody, even if nobody knows what you are doing with your money or in your life, God, God is sovereign above all. He knows what's going on. And so, while he's not necessarily talking to believers in this section, we can still learn something about God, and we can still learn something about money, because there's two competing ideas here. There's the sovereignty of God, and there's the sovereignty of money. The supreme authority power of God, or the supreme authority power of money. And so, the sovereignty of God is showcased that there is a mistreatment of the, of the lower class, and God knows about it. And he cares about it. And their, and their cries have reached his ears. And so the rich have elected to ignore the sovereignty of God. They have elected to ignore the fact that he, to believe that he is all powerful, that he knows all things. They elected to put their trust and their power and their control in money. And to use that to, to um, mistreat people. 
And there, so there's something we can learn about that. There, a lot of times we put our trust, we ignore the sovereignty of God, and we put our trust and our need for control into money. And you can be rich, and you can be all about money, and you can be poor, and still your life is all about money. Getting more money, finding more money, figuring it out. Or, or maybe you just want to make yourself happy, buying more stuff, a little... Um, What's the word? <laughs> retail therapy, right? I just got some retail therapy. That's why I had to make this announcement today. <laughs> A little retail therapy, right? You're putting your trust, you're putting your um, happiness in your possessions and what you have. And that's the central driving force of your life. And I, I'm, I'm a, I have my own business and... I like money, would like more of it, if I'm being honest. And a lot of times when, think, when business is good, I'm super happy. I'm treating my kids good. I'm treating my wife good. Life is awesome. And then when things aren't going as well as I want them, can you please give me a couple seconds of silence, right? It's like my attitude is different, and that's not okay, right? That shouldn't be the thing that drives my identity or my uh, happiness or my contentment. Because God is sovereign above all. He's in control, and I trust him. And so um, putting our trust in possessions, finding, trying to assert control of our lives with our possessions leads us to make bad decisions. And it led these farmers to make really bad decisions, and they got written down in the Bible for a long time. So that was, that was, a, that was a bummer. And so how do we fix that? How do we, how do we lean away from just reaching for control uh, in our lives? Reaching for control of finances. I just need to get more money and then I'll be okay. I got, if I could just do this, if this could just work out for me. Or no, I'm not going to do that. You can't have that extra drink at the McDonald's drive-thru or, you know, whatever. We, it's like, we, we don't want to live that way. We want to live, uh, we want to trust God and we want to put our, get our peace and our joy from him, not necessarily what's in our bank account or not necessarily what we have. Um, and so how do we fix that? I think money can be an uncomfortable subject in church. Personally, I don't get that. Um, money is like the one of the most important subjects of our lives, and somehow we don't acknowledge that in church. Like, I don't know. Um, we, we need to let the Bible... Um, influence what we think about the most important things of our lives. And so um, one way I think that we're able to make sure that money doesn't have a grip on our hearts is we, anybody? Get, oh, Ty, <laughs> you, guys, you guys went straight for the sucker punch. I was going to say, uh, we give, we're givers, we're generous. We don't, we, the best way to make sure that that control gets re released is that we give. And when you give, you make sure that your sovereignty, the, that where you believe the sovereignty is, is in God and not in money. And you trust God. And so historically, Christians have given to the church in the form of tithing. That is, has just always, the church hasn't been able to function unless the members of the church give money. And so, um, we give to the local church to ensure money doesn't have a grip on our heart. It's an act of worship. It's an act of trust to God. And 
the church has done more good for society than any other organization in the history of mankind. Just for society. Let's say you don't believe in the gospel, whatever. The church has done more for society than any other organization in the history of time. And you can say, well, they've done a lot of bad stuff. You would also be correct. <laughs> There's some not good stuff that happened, but the good far outweighs the bad. And I don't, I'm not, that's a different message. So if you want to, we could go to coffee or whatever, we could talk about it. Or you could Google search it, find all the good stuff. But, you know, do you know who, do you know the people group, I'll give you a couple examples. Do you know the people group that was the impetus for ending slavery? Christians. Christians were the impetus for saying this isn't right and to making it right. Do you know who uh, the church founded the first universities? Do you know where the first universities came out of? The church. Um, people like um, Albert the Great, Thomas Aquinas, all these people who helped develop the scientific method came out of universities that were founded by the church. And so the church has always been part of uh, a major source of social services like education, medical care, inspiration for art, culture, philosophy, politics, religion. And so all historically, we just, that's what we do. We give, and if you want to give to an organization, it doesn't have to be this church. I think if you come to this church, you should probably give to this church. Um, but if you, give to the, you, if you give to the church, it's the best organization you could give to. And giving releases the control. And so you can, you can go off on your own. You could give to the homeless guy that's standing on the street. You could do all that. But the church, you know what the first thing the church did in the early church when they started getting a bunch of people? There were a bunch of widows that weren't being taken care of. And so you know what they did? They developed a system. <laughs> they developed a system to make sure that people didn't get overlooked. And so when you give to the church, you're participating in the system. And God, the church, is the bride of Christ. And so they, the church is an agent of change for good. And so anyways, that's my spiel. You may be thinking, don't you get paid by what I'm giving today? And I just want to tell you, don't worry. No pastor at One Chapel is getting rich <laughs> off of your tithe. So <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but I... I I, I give, and I give because I trust God, and I don't want money to be my thing. So, and then the last thing I'll leave you with is some scripture. Um, giving has always been a part of a Christian's responsibility, giving to the church. And Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians, he's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's raising an offering. He's raising some money. Do you, does anybody know what he's, who he's raising money for? The church at Jerusalem. Who is in charge of the church at Jerusalem? James. Okay, so Paul is raising money for the church at Jerusalem, and he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. So there you go. Number one, possessions. Everybody got it? Um, 
The second area that we enter into the charade of control, how are we doing? Ten minutes? All right. You, uh, the second way we enter to the charade of control is our posture. Posture, our heart, uh, and more specifically, our heart posture. Okay, so James 5, 7 through 11, this is the next few verses. Verse 7, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See, brothers and sisters, now, we're, now we got nice James again. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because of the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So this next section is about our heart posture. It's about patience. And here James switches back to the church and he says, Be patient, brothers and sisters. Um, Just like money is a way that we exert, try to exert control of our lives, I think impatience is a symptom of just the longing to make it happen ourselves, to assert our own will on a situation. And so it's a little deeper than just, hey, you guys need to be nice with your money. It's like, what are you, what are you, how are you trying to exert your own will on a situation? Um, God's timing is, is almost never our timing. And um, some of us have been going through some really difficult things. You know what's going on in your life sitting in this room, and you came here to submit your life to the scriptures. And I believe God has something to say to you this morning. And maybe you've been waiting a long time. And God wants you to know that he is full of compassion and mercy. And the Lord wants you to know that he is sovereign over all, and, it's, and he uses um, um, Job... Right, The story of Job, this guy gets everything taken from him. His family, his wealth, and he has nothing left. And the devil comes to God and says, I bet he'll turn his back on you. And so there's this whole story about Job, and he's going through this difficulty. He's, he's wrestling with it, and he's um, trying to figure out what's going on, right? Uh, has anybody ever... Ask God to help them with patience. Big mistake. Big mistake right there. Because <laughs> right? the difficult thing about developing patience is it requires an extreme trust in God. And you don't get that extreme trust in God unless you go through something uncomfortable. And so if you say, yeah, I follow God, I trust in Jesus, but inwardly every time your circumstance doesn't match up with your desires, you stamp your feet or you exert your will, right? There's a little bit of splitting of of self right there. You're like, yeah, I trust in God, but if you would just do this for me, my life would be so much better, right? And so it's like, like, is that really a a sin? Is it really? Well, it's it's going in different directions. Your, Your life is going, is trying to exert its will that God's not quite ready to do. Or it's not his plan. Or he has a better idea. Sarah and Abraham had a promise that God gave them, right? And they waited a long time. But if you know the story, they got impatient. And what did they do? You can look it up later. But uh, Sarah told Abraham, 
you know what? I have a brilliant idea. Why don't you sleep with this other lady named Hagar, my servant, and then we'll have a kid that way. And what was the result? Not good. Had some sister wives action going on. Right? She goes, she ends up going out into the desert with her baby, and it's just a bad situation, okay? Because they tried to exert their will on the promise that God had given them. Moses and the Israelites, right? Moses hits the rock and tries to exert his will and try to fix the situation, and he gets banned from the promised land, right? It's easy to say you want patience and to say you trust in God, but when it comes down to our actual heart posture, we really would rather exert our own will over certain things. And so James uses the analogy of a farmer, and the, uh, a farmer understands the laws of nature, and the farmer, um, back in this day, was m- a lot of people, and they understood that any lack of patience on his part will serve only to increase frustration and disappointment and will lead to disaster. All right, James says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. All right, and then he goes on and he uses Job. Job loses everything. The devil says, I bet Job will turn his back on you because you're not getting, because he was not getting what he wants from you. He's just following you because you gave him everything. You gave him an awesome family. You gave him wealth. Why would he not follow you? It doesn't make any sense, right? And so he's testing Job's patience, his endurance, his resolve, and his faith. And so he ends up losing everything. His family dies except his wife who ends up cursing him and telling him, hey, you know what? You should just go die already. Listen, wives, don't be the kind of wife that the devil would like to leave alive to be mean to her husband. Because <laughs> um, that's just, every time I read that, that's essentially what's happened. His whole, he loses his whole family, and then his wife ends up being alive to just, like, curse him and be mean to him. So it's, it's the Bible, not me. Some of you are like, that's rude. And so Job has a series of complaints and conversations. And what happens at the end? God restores him, right? Because he was, uh, he, he had endurance, right? He, believed, he stood firm. Now, I look at that and I'm like, he complained the entire time. He threw a fit. He yelled at God. He was angry. But James, he ends the section. He says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And so if you're in this room today, God wants you to turn with your frustrations and you can unleash them to him. You can give them to him. You can say, this isn't fair. Uh, My wife's been sick for this long. We lost this. We lost that. We lost. And you can unleash those things to God. But God's goodness, God's goodness is there. His goodness stands firm. And at the end, he will make everything right again. And that is our hope as Christians, that at the end, we will be made right with him. That sin doesn't have dominion, that death doesn't have dominion, that sickness. And so we, we are patient. We don't exert our will on things. And so I want to encourage you today, keep pursuing him. Keep coming to church. Keep doing what he asks you to do. Keep going to a group like, it's weird. They're mean. <laughs> the thing about, everyone wants, everyone wants real relationships, but the moment you get close to people, you realize, ooh, not great. <laughs> right? 
And that's part of it. That's part of it. And the patience and the endurance is part of what it means to live as a Christian. And so you need to go to it. We had a great Wednesday night, uh, first Wednesday night this last week, where we worshiped. We got into groups. We had a ton of fun. We prayed over each other. We talked about things in life. And that is what the church is meant to do. We, we meet together on Sunday. We sing songs. We grow together in the week. We live at each other's house. We help one another. And that is how you grow in your relationship with God. It can't just be you come on Sundays and you go home and you don't think about anything else. And so I want to encourage you, keep, keep it up. Have endurance. Commit to relationship. Uh, come to the one-day retreat in however long, a couple weeks. <laughs> in a couple weeks. And spend a day. Spend a day. And um, prove that you trust God. Prove that you have patience. All right, I'm behind. Oh, here's the last quote that I want to leave. Harvest is never produced except by the natural processes of sowing, germination, and slow growth. Okay. All right, the last way. I'm getting played off like at the Oscars. (laughs) The last way we exert control is through perception. Perception. James 5.12, this is the last verse. It says, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. And so this verse is just kind of, it seems like it's tacked on. Um, And there's some debate whether it belongs in this section or it's a start of his ending of the book. Um, But I like it in this section. Um, Jesus He's, he, Jesus also alludes to this in Matthew and Mark, uh, Matthew five thirty four. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is uh, the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Dang, that would be cool. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And so... In ancient Israel, there was a practice of speaking oaths. Everyone say oaths. And you're like, oh, great, dude. I haven't spoken an oath in a while, so I'm doing pretty good. But in ancient times, this was a huge part of the culture. Uh, Let's say there was a disagreement or something, and the neighbor's cow fell (laughs) into a ditch or something or whatever, or you heard it or you ran over it or whatever, and, and there's a disagreement, and you're like, you swear by blah, 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 you swear by God, you swear by the temple. Um, I swear by Yahweh that I didn't take it, but as time turns out, right, like, there's all these misunderstandings, there's all these things that weren't true, that you thought were true, but you'd already sworn an oath to Yahweh, already sworn an oath, I swear by God, and, and what is that essentially doing? You're using God to bolster your own version of reality. You're using God to say, God is with me on this. I did this. You don't know this. And you're using God. You're, ta- you're essentially taking God's name in vain and you're using it to spin. Everyone say spin. You're using it to spin your reality. And so um, 
Dallas Willard, he has this quote. He says, The essence of swearing that Jesus targets here is about invoking something or someone else, making your words seem more significant and weighty than they are to impress others with your seriousness or piety so that you can get what you want. It's a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment or input of others in order to possess them for your own purposes. And so in our world, we do this all the time. In social media, we use certain things as smoke screens to make it so that we can hide from other people, to make it so that, and this is a detriment to the body of, of Christ that we try to spin and we try to bolster and we try to manipulate and we try to maneuver with our words or with our clothes or with our cars or with our social media or whatever it is, we try to create this facade and what it does is it only isolates you and it makes you, you're because you're trying to control everything in your life. You're trying to control the outcomes. You're trying to use God to, to as a smoke screen and that's not good. All right. So we're going to go into a time of worship here and we're going to worship God. And I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know in what ways you try to grasp for control or try to exert your will or try to, James talks about possessions. He talks about your posture and he talks about perception and, and life, you know, God just drills down on those things. He goes further and further And so this morning, Jesus is inviting you into a deeper surrender to him. He's inviting you into another level of repentance and conviction. No matter how far along you are in your walk, Jesus always invites us into deeper surrender. And James is encouraging us to break down our inner selves so that our souls can live in unity. Everyone say unity. Can live in unity before God. Scripture says free and open living. 